Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Thank you, Mr. Intro, Outro Guy. And yeah, sit back and relax and welcome to the Vet Podcast with Brendan and Mark. I'm Brendan and with me here is Mark. And it it's another week, Mark. It's the week ending March the 9th, 2018. What have you been up to this week, Mark? Brendan, I've been, it's been a bit of a family weekend. I've uh, shot up to the famous Jimmy's Beach uh, in Hawk's Nest and um, and spent some time with my um, in-laws and uh, and my two sons and um, pretty much uh, just sat by the beach and watched the birds go by. So um, I had a really relaxing weekend. That sounds good. Well, I must admit that I didn't have to work at all this weekend because we had a bit of an event on. Well, actually, it wasn't just this weekend, Mark. It was sort of it was a bit of a lead up as well. We had our our reunion of our graduate class. So it was our thirtieth reunion, Mark. Even though it's actually thirty one years this year. So, so we had a big get together. Our our um our 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 um class was. I think we started with 50 vets, uh, vet students in our class and 46 of us graduated, so much smaller classes in those days, and um, 31 or 32 turned up. So we had a, 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 um, a dinner at Elaine's place, um, which was fully catered for. We had a 10-course banquet, Mark. How's that? Um, that is impressive. It started with an afternoon tea, which was probably a bad idea because a few people turned up early, including myself. Um, and there was lots of, um, lots of, um, um, watery sort of liquid there as well. And, um, then it kicked on to the 10 course meal, but it was fantastic catching up with everybody because, um, probably, um, 25 of the 32 or so that turned up I haven't seen for a very long time. Although, Mark, the scary thing is I don't know what they have been doing. I think they've been sat out in the sun for a while or they've been drinking too much, but they look so old. They're so old. <laughs> I've been looking at the photo that you sent that um, hopefully you'll post up on our um, our page and um, and they, they don't look that old, but I tell you what, there's not a lot of hair going around there. Hey, hey, be careful what you say there, Mark. I think I might post it on, yeah, I will post it on our vetgurus.com website and um, people can try and um, work out which one which one is me there. Um, so that will be fun. But, yeah, they're, they're, gee, they've gone to pot. I'll tell you what, they're, um, you know, they're, they're just looking so old. Um, I just couldn't believe it. And I thought, gee, what's, what's wrong with you lot? Um, but we had a good time. We had a good time. We caught up, and and we were known as the rat bag class uh, for some reason. Um, that that we used to get up to mischief and um, do a few practical or lots of practical jokes um, to the um, professors and the lecturers, and um, um, got into tr- a lot of trouble. And yet, um, when I look over the the, the um, the group that um, I went through university with. There's a fair few professors there and there's people from specialists in dermatology to equine specialists to to fish specialist vets to um, an unusual pet vet like me um, and um, uh, a vet who um, is very high up in, in the zoo world as far as research goes um, and a cardiologist. There's a, there's a vet who's, Mark, who's dual boarded in the state so he has his um, cardiology um, boards um, from the US and he also has his internal medicine so he's, he's sat two specialty um, exams over in the States and um, he just sort of works um, um, helping people publish papers over at, at Cornell University so yeah so considering we were a, a bunch of rat bags um, I think we did pretty well um, although by the end of the night we were a bunch of rat bags Mark um, and um, Full and circle, Brendan. You've gone full <laughs> circle. Yes. Um, what comes around, goes around, comes around, hey. Um, and um, I was glad for my lift home. Um, and, I, and I think my wife, Annie, was, was, was correct in that um, I managed to convince her to drop me off um, for the reunion. And um, she said, see you later. You can catch an Uber home or find some other way home. I'm not bringing you, coming back to um, 
to to drop you off home. So um, and I did. Um, I was about to look for an Uber, but um, another one, another of my colleagues um, who wasn't drinking um, decided to um, give me a lift back home. So that was fantastic. So yeah, that was my weekend, and um, yeah, um, it was a good weekend. So I'm looking forward to the next one. Although I must admit, I did mention it to one of our our, our good friends, James um, from Tasmania, and I said oh, um, I couldn't um, return his call because we had our reunion. And he said, uh, uh, I said, we had our 30th reunion. And he said, oh, um, I think I've got my 60th reunion in in in, um, in the year. And um, I think we've got a lot of catching up to do to catch up to um, James with a 60th reunion, Mark. And I'm pretty sure he said 60th, not 50th. So, yeah. Um, and I think I'd, I'd uh, be quite happy to be alive, let alone practising um, um, after, after 60 years of graduation, yeah. So was it um well it, it you know one of the things about I when I meet up with some of the people that I went to university with it is almost just like you've just taken a short breath in a conversation and come back to it but the breath has lasted for years was it just like meeting up with you know the the same people with the same gags and um, uh, remembering the same pranks that you played on or the or <laughs> was it all like that. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. After it, and, and I must admit, there was, and I'm not going to mention their names, um, just to protect the innocent. There was, I think, three of the um, graduates, um, my colleagues, that I initially did not recognise as they walked in the door. Um, but um, even with those ones, once they opened their mouths and started talking, yeah, it was like going back thirty years, yeah, um, and 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 being at um, in the lecture theatre again and remembering the same people that would be asleep in all the lectures um, were, were still um, looking like they were nodding off um, at, at the reunion. So yeah, it was exactly the same. It was uncanny, yeah. Um, so yeah, people don't change; it's just their skin gets old. I think, Mark. <laughs> so. Enough about us. Um, let's um, let's jump into some news. Actually, I just want to uh, mention one thing. Um, I think there's a bit of an article out um, in the veterinary um, veterinarian magazine here in in Australia, and it just happens to feature the Vet Gurus podcast. So, for those of you who have access to that, um, you may wish to pull out the veterinarian, and you may see. Um, a little article about um, Mark and myself and this particular podcast you're listening to right now. So thanks to Anne and um, the people at The Veterinarian. And I was just looking at our st- statistics, Mark, and it is, guess how many countries now? We have listeners in 31 countries. So I think that's amazing. And um, one of the most recent ones is we do have one listener in Colombia. So hello to our um, listener in Colombia and um, make sure you mention us to your other veterinary college and your veterinary nurses technicians um, because we we like to hear from people and we don't have an email this this week do we mark um for many no, we don't have an so, email, but I, I, I really encourage people to that uh, send us you know one of the things that we do like to do is make sure we're talking about topical issues and there's nothing that uh, makes an issue more topical than someone making it relevant to someone so um but i i it's just fascinates me and excites me that um, that yeah more than thirty countries around the world there's um, there's uh, people um, who intermittently have listened to you and I talking about stuff so that, yeah that's amazing yeah well I, I but yes I'm 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 quite surprised because I thought that the only people that would be listening would be um, our immediate families who who um, um, here is droning on from from your studio slash cupboard and my my back room and and my two dogs that are often sitting beside me as 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 we speak and um, and maybe one or two other people so yeah we we feel quite um, I certainly feel quite privileged to have a, um, that number of people listening to us that we do have and and people from such a varied um, number of countries so so yeah I think we I mean as as as, as our 
close friends say we just like talking anyway so we'll probably keep doing it regardless of whether anybody listens anyway yeah um let's jump into news mark and you've got one about domestic dogs and endangered species do you want to have a little chat on that one i do indeed it's um well this this whole topic has been a little bit of a uh, um a thing for me lately and so in searching around trying to find different aspects to it um, um one of my friends in fact has some um, uh, they, they've done a crowdfund project uh, uh, where they um, uh, are uh, training dogs to search for endangered species. Uh, but I found this um, article on The Conversation, one of my other favourite um, locations, uh, characterised by academic rigour and journalistic flair. Um, I wouldn't be surprised that you're writing articles for The Conversation in short order, Brendan. Um, but this particular article talks about... Um, uh, how domestic dogs threaten endangered species worldwide, um, and um, and it is uh, one that I particularly was interested in because I'll tell you later on about some of the things that happened on the weekend while I was away at Jimmy's Beach. But um, yes. this article um, mainly talks about uh, the way that uh, um, that uh, many threatened species are directly impacted by. Uh, uh, feral or semi-feral dogs, and so um, there is direct uh, research data that um, that dogs are implicated in the extinction of at least eleven species around the world. Most notably, the Hawaiian rail. I love my rails, um, and uh, to lose one of those beautiful birds from the world is uh, is uh, um, yeah very depressing. And um, but they're also known or potential threats to. Um, 188 species worldwide, 96 mammals, 78 birds, 22 reptiles and three amphibians. Um, and uh, as a major factor, major potential uh, deleterious factor in those threatened species, um, uh, it's, uh, it's, yeah, um, it's a bad thing for our uh, close friend, the dog. They are after Cats and rodents, they're the world's most damaging invasive mammalian predators. Um, so uh, I think uh, there's a, a lot to be... Um, a lot to be said. Well, I know there's a lot of talk these days. In fact, the Threatened Species Commissioner tweeted um, just the other day about um, uh, cat uh, control programs in South Australia. Uh, but I think um, uh, wild dogs... Um, are another area that uh, we really, maybe not even the wild ones. Um, one study near Sydney found that um, uh, dog walking in uh, in bushland reduced the abundance and species uh, diversity of birds, even if the dogs were uh, restrained on leads. Uh, so, so yeah, um, while they play an excellent role as a companion. Um, I th and they help uh, us to find some threatened species. Um, they uh, certainly can be a, a negative factor in our wildlife. Oh, that's depressing, Mark. Very depressing. Um, well, lift, us quite, lift, lift us up, <laughs> raise us there's, up. There's quite a good. Um, I must admit, there's a yeah, it is a good good article and it has some um, very interesting um, little graphics in there. Um, and I'm just looking at that. Um, um, map of the world, one with the regional concentrations of threatened species um, negatively impacted by domestic dogs, um, noting that um, here we are in Australia and we're pretty high up. We're almost um, um, as bad as um, what looks like South America and Central America are the worst as far as the um, um, wildlife threatened by domestic dogs. Yeah, so, yeah, a little bit depressing, but I suppose you need... Um, you know, life is bad ups and down is, downs, isn't it, Mark? And here I am wearing my Lacoste T-shirt here. Um, why? Because of the um, Lacoste has swapped out the iconic Croc logo for endangered species, um, according to the next news article. And um, I think um, most of us would recognise the um, the um, famous Lacoste symbol of the green croc um, on their T-shirts. And and um, what they have done is, um, and I'm a little bit ambivalent about this one, Mark, whether it is just a PR stunt or not, but what, what they have have done, a, they have a campaign, um, a three-year Save Our Species campaign, um, where the crocodile is joined by not one but ten different animals emblazoned in a series of classic and very limited Lacoste polo shirt, shirt, shirts. 
shorts. Um, maybe they should put it on shorts as well. So um, I don't think I'll be rushing out to buy one um, because it looks like the um, they are they're only making um, several hundred of them, and the cost of them is one hundred and fifty euros mark, um, which is about one hundred eighty three dollars US, um, and they're supposedly um, helping raise um, awareness and and some funds um, for several severe. Um, endangered species, including, um, I'm just having a look through the list here, the Burmese roofed turtle, the northern sportive lemur, the Javan rhino, the cat, the cowvit gibbon, the kakapo um, from New Zealand, the Californian condor, the Sumatran tiger, the and any got a ground iguana and the saola, which is an antelope um, in Laos and Vietnam. And last but not least, the incredibly rare and enigmatic porpoise species known as uh, vaquita. So are you going to get one of these um, T-shirts, Mark? Because only 1,755 of these polos have been produced, so they may even be sold out by now. Um, what's your opinion on this sort of thing? I mean, uh, um, it's well, they've got the... I think it's worked for the PR because we're reading out the particular article and I'm sure a lot of other news agencies, um, we we pulled this from um, Mother Nature Network um, article on March the 6th. Um, um, so do you think it's a worthwhile thing to do? Well, it, it's a very it's one of those things that's very hard to, to appreciate how valuable it is or not it's um I've got uh, the interesting thing was that um, the article was brought to my attention when my son asked me if uh, I would buy him one of them him being a bit of a fashion guru and, and uh, a slave to um, to uh, the brand names um, but um, but I jeez oh, I do worry that um, that uh, that a lot of um, awareness is directed to the campaign and to the the original brand and and only you know how many of those species will people be able to name even when they're wearing the shirt around um, in five or six years and how much money directly goes to um, the um, you know I don't mean to be a cynic but um, how much ends up in the hands of the researchers for example of the kakapo in New Zealand I I, yes. I, I, I um I, I you can't um, say it shouldn't happen but geez i wish more good more good than just um changing the logo on lacoste t-shirts um so the, so the question is mark did you buy him one of these t-shirts these polos i have not brendan he's, uh. he's, he, he, he's got more money than i have he should be buying <laughs> me one Ah, oh dear. Okay, so um, back to something a little bit more serious. You have a, an article about uh, dogs again. Gee, you're getting stuck into the dogs. Um. Well, I, this, this, I, I am really getting stuck into the dogs. And part the reason was that where we are, where we spent our time on Jimmy's Beach on the weekend, um, one of the reasons I went there was that um, that. It is a, a recognised nesting site for the endangered little tern, um, and so there's an area of um, of the beach, the western end of the beach, near the the uh, the, the um, Mile River, um, where the Mile River leaves uh, Port Stephens, um, and there's a lovely fenced-off area, classic um, tern nesting site. Um, interestingly enough, I think the sites were created when the um, the river was dredged at one point. So there's lovely piles of sand, and the terns love this sort of relief, and uh, they gravitate there to breed. Um, but unfortunately, huge numbers of people let their dogs wander around, um, and um, and and funnily enough, they're the sort of people who who you know of a certain age and certain respectability, certain rule-following, you know, um, uh, um, uh, cohort, um, but they they have no trouble just letting their dog off the leash and letting it wander around and bark and and uh, and um, run past the the uh, you know string line barrier which highlights the area. So um, in searching around for information on uh, this topic, I did come across this PDF um, which is put out by uh, Birds Australia, sponsored by National Parks and Wildlife and a number of councils and land care groups, which does talk about the. Uh, the the 
critical importance of um, shorebird nesting and roosting sites and how they are now are reduced to very, very small um, areas of our coastline and uh, and those areas are profoundly affected by um, dogs that are, well, not, as we said before, not just the ones off leashes, the ones that are on leashes, um, the droppings, the change to the local in- environment, the fact that the birds are disturbed enough to get off their uh, eggs, these things all make a huge difference. And uh, and I think it's a good thing that we um, all up and down the coast that we're aware that um, while it's fun to have the dogs run on the sandy beaches, um, uh, maybe we should keep them to the, the uh, you know, not just that I want to be a, a rule follower, but um, use the area. There are designated areas and I encourage everyone to use those. Enough down. What's your next uplifting story, Brendan? <laughs> That's quite a quirky um, um little uh um document that i, I like it that the, the catch line is dogs and leashes birds and beaches yeah and i i just read through it after you forwarded that to me and i think it's quite a good summary of what people should and shouldn't be doing with their dogs on on, on beaches um not that they were um interested in listening to anything like that where you were with them yeah um yeah the next article is about a slug mark um a slug um the giant pink slugs of mount capitur and is that near you um this particular area because you um, did send me this article yeah no no it's it's a bit further up uh, it's in new south wales mount capitur but it's up i think it's up near armadale Okay, yep, and um, they've discovered massive neon pink slugs um, found atop the extinct volcano in inland New South Wales. Um, and, yeah, it was. Um, they are striking animals. And, um, yeah, I encourage every, all our listeners to, to go to the link um, from our websites for this little article, and they are incredibly bright pink, huge slugs. And, and um, I think they mentioned they can grow up to, let's have a look, um, at their largest they reach roughly the length of a paperback book and a width of four to six centimetres. And they've only been discovered, um, yeah, just several years ago, these high altitude slugs. And uh, they've maintained a low profile due to their remote location. And yet you look at the pictures of them, they stand <laughs> out like a um, like a target, don't they? Um, and um, I think the last, um, the last paragraph sort of tries to explain what I, I thought as soon as I saw it. Um, why are they so bright pink? What advantage? is it um, to be bright pink and um, the comment is um, in the article that there's one idea that the pink colour camouflages them against the colour of fallen snow gum leaves on the forest floor. I think that's a lot of crap. Um, yeah, um, so I think someone's- um, but then again, they spend a lot of their time way up in the canopy, nowhere near the floor. So it might just be that if you're a giant slug, Way up on an isolated mountain top, you can be whatever colour you like, Mark. Um, and that's the last um, line there. So yeah, thank you for forwarding that little article. But they look pretty, pretty um, amazing. These giant slugs. Yeah. So that's how. I don't know whether that's a, a, um, a an uplifting story or not. I suppose it is if if it's um, um, for the slugs. But what I can see happening now is we'll be getting um, having lots of people visit that area to try and find these. Um, slugs and if they're that bright and, and visible and large then um, they may be um, critically endangered fairly soon maybe they'll appear on a lacoste t-shirt soon mark well fortunately the the um, mount capita is um uh, is a national park and there are ranges there so um uh, and i think most people will um will do the right thing but there is a, a um you know a subculture of of uh, um, people who do keep and breed um, uh, land mollusks, and I'm sure a 20-centimetre-long giant pink slug would be high on their list of things to acquire. Um, but, yeah, um, uh, hopefully our ranger up there will make sure that um, that those animals... They're actually in, in a very... Restri- I said it was Armadale, but it's Narrabri, um, the national park is near, um, and they're... they're um, you know, in in a very small geographic range, but they're apparently quite common there in that uh, in that very small area. So, um, yes. that, and I, it amazes me that they haven't been discovered. Like they they are, you know, they there there has to be something um, 
either nothing in that area eats slugs or they taste really bad because no one's going to miss them, 20-centimetre long, bright pink slugs. They stick out like you in a Lacoste T-shirt, Mark. I think that's what it is. Um, you have a, um, I think you have a little review for us, don't you, before we jump into our main um, main topic of the week. And I do have is... a quick review. Um, I uh, read a book. I read a lovely book and I thought I would just give you a bit of an idea of what I thought about it. The book is, I keep um, mispronouncing the book, um, it is 1Q84. It's a uh, dystopian novel by Haruki Maraka, Mar- Mura, Murakami, um, a very, very famous Japanese novelist. Um, and uh, it um, it's a little bit of a, apparently, Q um, is uh, the... Japanese letter, which has the sound of Q, um, can act for um, nine. It's homonymous. The nine and letter Q sound the same in uh, the Japanese language. So, um, so this is a little bit of play on 1984. Um, I, it's a very long. It's a series of three novels that have been um, joined together into one book. Um, it is. Uh, um, uh, doesn't actually. It's uh, the the author did suggest that um, he was making some form of um, uh, um, uh, tribute to George Orwell's nineteen eighty four. But I really, I don't. You know, outside of the name, I don't see that there's um, you know a whole lot of uh, direct um, uh, relevance to nineteen eighty four. Um, it was it's a um, it was a really really long read, about a thousand pages, um, and the and a lot of it was um, really relatively slow going, uh, uh, detailed, um, pedantic detailed text um, uh, talking about um, uh, aspects of the characters, um, and apparently maybe this is a cultural thing. Japanese novelists um, like to go into this sort of extensive detail um and maybe you know western maybe there's a cultural jump i did i i didn't enjoy the um the detail the the um extensive repetitive detail and the um that it just made it a bit laborious to get through and the other thing in the way of many of these arty books it it just didn't you know there was lots of plot threats which just didn't end up going anywhere or there was no uh, neat resolution there was a bit of a frayed ending to the feel of the book um so so i enjoyed the general um you know uh, uh, the, the the story the um it uh, kept me occupied and didn't let me put the book down but um but i it's uh, i probably won't go back and uh, be um uh, reading it again anytime soon brendan so we need a, a score out of 10, Mark. Look, I, since... I think this one's only a 7 out of 10. 7 out of 10, which is quite low for you. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless, where did you – so my, my, my immediate question would be where did you – how did you come across this um, book? Did somebody recommend it to you? Yes, or? it was It was actually given to me by my, um, my, by my solicitor. So I don't know what significance you read into that, um, but um, but yeah, he, he he's regularly given me some very good suggestions of books to read, and I can't say I didn't enjoy it. It just uh, it was yeah, not not my favourite book. And I expect it um, that cost you a lot of money that book um, visiting your solicitor. So um, it's a very expensive text, um, a very expensive read. Yeah. Okay. So that's a non-veterinary um, um, book again. And we like to, for our new subscribers, and we have a fair few new subscribers the last few weeks, we we often review veterinary products for use in the clinic, but also veterinary textbooks. But sometimes we go out on a limb and just review something completely different, don't we, Mark? Um, like that particular book, and it's not one that I have ever um, heard of. So, and by the sound of it, it's not one that I um, need to read from your review. <laughs> um, so, let's jump into our main um, topic this week, which is dystopia or difficult birth in reptiles, Mark. So, um, I think what we were planning to do when we discussed discussing off um, off air before the podcast started that we would do a bit of a summary of. Um, 
the practical approach to these conditions in in the three groups of reptiles um, um, well uh, we'll leave crocodilians off it but we'll concentrate on on chelonians so our turtles and tortoises our, our lizards and our snakes so let's kick off with um, turtles that are having trouble laying eggs mark so what's your approach to them um, let's do a, a quick snappy little summary for our listeners about um, um, what's what's the best approach for these um, types of um, problems in our in our little turtles well I think um, the key thing is that um, uh, in turtles we find that um, that it is really uh, an, an emergency it's really a thing that um, uh, that's going to be something that um, puts the turtle to significant trouble in the next few hours. You definitely, in the case of Kilonians, have some time up your sleeve to uh, to work through some uh, medical options and uh, some supportive care. Um, and uh, and and that's it, it's interesting that um, they cope so well with um, uh, dystochias that they're often. Um, you know the signs are non-specific. The, they might just go off their food or whatever, and it's often only when we take radiographs that um, that we be, it becomes apparent that they've um, they've got uh, a bunch of eggs in there that should come out. So um, our experience with turtles, our uh, our experience with them is that they're um, they're generally uh, not cases that we need to um, to rush into anything particularly urgent. We've got uh, we've got a chance to work through our medical treatments with them. And um, we should then jump into what our recommendations for the medical treatment would be. So um, I, I'd i suggest, um, well, did we mention in a previous podcast that the, um, I think it was last week with the wildlife, that the, the, um, any turtle that uh, we see in our clinic coming in, um, we always think about is that a female that's crossing the road um, trying to find a nest in sight. So don't forget to radiograph, um, especially in the breeding season, these these turtles. And if they have been bowled over by a, a car or, or, or um, have an injury, then we need to think about trying to get help get those eggs out. So um, our practice, and we have exactly the same um, results and and um, thoughts as you with with the um, turtles and, and and the tortoises, Mark. We use medical methods and, and time, and uh, it reminds me of the throwaway line that we often use with reptiles: in that, in reptiles, emergencies happen slowly, um, so we don't need to typically um, jump in there and do an emergency cesarean with these guys, like we would consider with a dog or a cat or most most other species that are commonly dealt with and we give them some time so we set them up in a little hospital cage or even better back home um, where they have a nest in sight and I think one of the key factors if with some of these what the reason why they don't um, um, manage to pass out those eggs is that they feel like they haven't got a site to lay them in and if they're not provided with a site to dig and bury and, and 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 pop those eggs into then then they may hang on to those eggs and end up being a dystopia um so time um providing adequate nest insight um, um fluids we often give them um fluids as part of the treatment of helping them induce um um passing these eggs and and the other medical wise that the the obvious um um, drug that we um, um, get into them is is oxytocin. Um, reptiles have their own um, variant of of um, the oxytocin. The mammalian, the reptilian equivalent of oxytocin is um, vasotocin. Um, and I don't know whether you have vasotocin in stock in your clinic, Mark, but it is incredibly difficult to get, and it's also incredibly expensive. So we're left with using oxytocin and the good news is it does seem to work um very well in the, in in um, many cases um what's your experience with the use of oxytocin in these cases it's been really good and uh, uh, the only other thing i would um i, th- I think my uh, personal personal experience is that um if we uh, often these turtles have um, calcium metabolism issues they may not be technically um, overall calcium deficient, um, but they may not be shifting the calcium around their 
body in the best way to create contraction. So we do give them um, some calcium as well. And often if we've preloaded them with calcium and we give them a dose of oxytocin, it's remarkably successful at uh, at, uh, um, at causing them to deliver the eggs. Um, so much so that um, uh, even, though, um, even though I completely agree almost invariably an absence of a suitable nest site with appropriate humidity and stimulus through digging will be a contributing factor. Lots of our turtles will just, uh, you know, have a nest site but go back into the water and under the influence of um, the oxytocin pop the eggs out into the water. Mm-hmm. So um, so our experience is really, uh, we've been really quite mm-hmm. successful at using the oxytocin to um, affect um the passage of the eggs. We have a, yes, we, I agree totally. <laughs> we have exactly the same um, results as you, and obviously looking for. We have the complicated um, cases where we have um, pelvic fractures or severe shell injuries, and then it can make things very difficult. And we possibly may not be choosing a medical treatment for these but we're, we're talking about the uncomplicated dystochias if there's such a thing um so what about the snakes mark so what's your what should do we hit, hit them with the oxytocin if they're struggling to lay their eggs or, or a live bearer as a as a um, um much younger and f- more foolish veterinarian i did take the opportunity of um of using oxytocin at a number of um of dystochias in in snakes, and um, I was universally, without exception, disappointed. Um, uh, as far as um, our, uh, you know, the, the majority of um, dystochias we get to deal with are the pythons laying eggs, and uh, and we treat those as as close to a surgical emergency as reptiles get. Um, they, uh, in our experience, are unlikely with medical treatment to pass the eggs and uh, and you need to um, uh, cut them in several locations and uh, and get those uh, um, eggs out. I have read about um, uh, percutaneous ovocentesis, a technique that um, we'll often use in birds, but in my hands that has not been particularly, you know, then I just end up with a, a bunch of... Um, of uh, hollowed out eggs that still remained in the oviduct. And so um, getting in and, and uh, um, opening up the, the uh, um, oviduct and getting the eggs out is um, the best way for us to go with snakes. Yes, I think the only ones that I would consider doing uh, the ovocentesis would be a, a snake that has managed to pass most or, or you know, the vast majority and, and there's only one or two eggs left um, near the cloacal region and um, I may consider deflating them and, and under some heavy sedation or light sedation lubricate and, and then manually um, consider... Uh, just gently uh, massaging that um, eggshell out of the animal, but um, you've returned the, to the toothpaste technique. The toothpaste technique, Mark. There you go. Um, everything ends up being the toothpaste technique, doesn't it? Um, just make sure you're providing adequate analgesia when you're using the toothpaste technique. That's all I'd like to say. Um, but most of them, um, if not the ninety, yeah, the vast majority, like you mentioned, with the, with the the pythons and and the snakes that we see here in Australia, um, definitely we end up surgical with them. So completely opposed to to, uh, um, to, to what happens with the turtles, um, which vast majority of medical, the vast majority of the um, snake dystochias are surgical. So we get in there or I get in there and get those eggs out surgically, which can be a little bit of a challenge because you have this long tube of an animal that may have, you know, a dozen, two dozen uh, eggs in there and um, making a decision of where to do that at first incision um, can be tricky because you can sometimes milk once you're in there, surgically milk the eggs into the one incision site and if you're lucky, manage to get all the eggs out of one site. So I tend to make my incision in the middle of, of where all those eggs are um, as far as along the length of the body of the snake. Um but some of them 
I end up having to do a opening up that incision more or even doing a second incision or a third incision. Do you manage to get most of them out from one incision, Mark, when you're taking them to surgery? No, that's usually not been uh, my experience. But then I'm I'm much more, um, you know, uh, wary of, um, of milking things along the body cavity. Um, I think... Uh, with a low number and uh, with excellent lubrication, I think uh, there's probably been half a dozen times where I've had the single incision and been able to get the eggs out. But the vast majority of them we've got, as you said, to make um, two and often three incisions. Um, and uh, and while you know we're weighing up the trauma of the incisions against the potential trauma of um, manipulating the, the very delicate oviduct, um, I think... Uh, uh, Speed-wise, I get them out more quickly um, where I've made those um, additional one or two uh, laparotomy, uh, ciliotomy incisions. Yes, and I think most of them, when you get in there, those eggs are adhered to the oviduct, um, so they're stuck on there. Um, so so what do you do with the oviduct? Once you've, assuming you have all those eggs out, what is your technique with um, um, dealing with that? And, for instance, let's assume that the client wants to breed from that female again. Well, once again, uh, when I was a um, uh, much younger veterinarian and I was doing this, I would um, pull out the um, 6.0 suture material. Obviously, I had um, much better eyes as well. Um, and I would sew the oviduct closed. Um, and um, as you can imagine, with uh, a car, maybe three um, three incisions and uh, um, and um, and three uh, ciliotomies and multiple incisions at each site in the in the oviduct that could end up being quite, quite a time-consuming um, uh, effort. Um, but um, I have seen some studies which talk about just leaving those incisions, um, and, um, and we certainly have had uh, uh, um, reptiles breed uh, for multiple years after um, uh, salpingotomy um, that have not, um, been surgically, you know, uh, closed up, uh, sutured closed, that uh, the oviduct, despite its um, uh, ultra-thin, almost uh, see-through appearance, is a um, metabolically very active tissue and uh, and those incisions seem to heal up, um, leading to um, completely normal function when the oviduct returns to activity the subsequent season. Yes, uh, I have had both both situations there. In the, the larger pythons, I do still try and suture that oviduct, uh, but it tends to tear and I probably, even with the larger pythons, I'm using a fairly fine uh, absorbable suture material, 4.0 to 6.0 um, suture material. And even with using such a fine suture material, it sometimes pulls through and I may give up. So other snakes that I've done the uh, surgery on, I will leave the oviduct and they magically uh, repair themselves um, post-operatively and, and go on to breed. Yeah, so um, the good news of that for those people who don't do many um, dystocia surgeries in, in snakes, do not be afraid of just leaving that oviduct open and, and trying to spend lots of time repairing it and, and suturing it back in there. The other option, obviously, is 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 spaying that um, that animal and um, desexing it at the same time, especially if we've got other pathology going on in there in the reproductive tract. Um, so, what happens with lizards? Tell me about um, difficult births or birthing in lizards, Mark. What should preferred treatment method for those? Surgical, medical. Well well, it, it, yes. The answer is yes. My <laughs> treatment measure, me, uh, method is um is both surgical and medical. They very neatly fit in between the two extremes of the spectrum that are snakes and turtles. That um that we do have um uh, some lizards that uh, that are um, responsive, maybe not quite as responsive as turtles to oxytocin and just like you we'd we would love to have access to um uh, vasotocin and uh the opportunity to um to use that species specific 
um, drug, but um, uh, it's not freely available and it's only pretty much used in research settings. Um, but, um, but yeah, we'll, we'll uh, prime our uh, lizards with some additional calcium. We'll give them some pain relief, make sure they're well hydrated um, and give them a, a dose of oxytocin, uh, provide them with a, uh, an enclosure as you said before, maybe their enclosure at home with a suitable site to lay the eggs um, and give them a little bit of time. Um, but if we are, um, you know, uh, are 72 hours down the track with a bearded dragon um, that hasn't laid eggs after that sort of treatment, um, then then we're switching to our, um, our surgical resolution. Um, we... Uh, we we don't leave them nearly as long as um, as our uh, turtles, um, and we find that um, they they don't get into as trouble as much trouble as quickly as snakes. But um, we uh, certainly don't leave them um, weeks and weeks waiting to see whether they're going to be able to get them out. Yep. Guess what? I agree with what you say again. And <laughs> I always look at that husbandry because it, in a in a large percentage of the cases, it, it's something they're not doing quite right. And even with the lizards, it's it's long term um, poor husbandry. Um, the un, the only thing I, I've always found fascinating is the is the whole aspect of um, how important adding calcium to them um, during the process of trying to help them medically if we're treating them medically, Mark, um, because I'm still ambivalent about whether or not it works um, or whether we're just throwing the calcium in there as a supplement, thinking that it helps like it does in other species, like, for instance, in a lot of the mammals, um, that the calcium has been proven to help um, with it help induce them to, to give birth. But uh, I... I must admit, um, looking through the literature, I, I struggle or I have struggled in the past to find decent references that will say the calcium does help um, with reptiles in helping them lay their eggs or their live young. And yet I will reach out and use it in some cases as well. So um, I think that's always a, a tricky one. Somebody will get out there and do some decent research and work out whether or not we truly need to use the calcium to to supplement and to help them um, produce those, pop out those little, little young little reptiles. Um, have you found anything decent um, um, reporting the the um, the effects of calcium for dystochias, Mark, or not? No, and, and it's an interesting point that you raise because uh, just earlier this afternoon I was talking to my associate uh, Dr. Alex Mastakov about this particular. Um, this particular uh, phenomenon in in exotic and avian veterinary care that um, there is a whole lot of stuff that we do that's extrapolated from what we know definitively about small animals, but um, there for many of these things there is very little hard evidence on the ground to um, to support them, and we are only extrapolating from other experience. We know that. Um, uh, many of these animals will be uh, will be have will have trouble with their calcium metabolism. But how much the supplemental calcium uh, that I give them uh, makes a difference? I can't give you a uh, um, you know a, a, um, an excellent um, article which backs me up in its use. Um, so I, I look forward to um, that student that um, puts together a. Uh, um, a, a double-blinded study and um, can tell us that it is or is not the right thing to do. Um, but, um, but yeah, sometimes we don't have them yet, Brendan. We just don't have that information. That's right, and it may indeed prove that we need to give calcium to all of them. But, yeah, well, maybe it's maybe we can report on that at my 60th um, reunion, um, <laughs> Mark, and um, we'll all be there in um, our little wheelchairs. Um, for those of you, uh, us who are still above the ground at that stage. And uh, we'll be talking about that famous Mark who um, did the research into calcium and reptiles. Um, and I'll so remember I've got this another question about this topic for you, Brendan. Um, yes. What do you advise when you've gotten the eggs out? What do you advise the owners to do with them? Do you, um, do you um, uh, suggest that they set them in their incubator? Yes, 
um, I'd say to them if they were well, I, I think a, a large maybe it's a bit of a trick question you've given me, but I, I, I my I'm experience not, I'm is not that, I'm not that deep. No, <laughs> my experience is that a large percentage of them um, do not um, are not viable or, or um, do not manage to complete their process and, and hatch out. Uh, but having said that, I don't think there's any harm in and apart from a bit of time and effort to try and incubate them so i mentioned to my clients i say um, here's the eggs think about incubating them but i don't think the chances are good that uh, they'll be a viable eggs because i expect that in a fair percentage of the cases they have been overcooked and we've got hard-boiled eggs there mark and uh, they're not viable what's your experience um, and you would be so surprised to learn that that's exactly the same as us. That um, uh, we we um, have them out, and uh, and some of them will look like slugs as you get them out. You can just about rule a bunch of them out. Um, the uh, um, the the remainder, I do suggest that um, uh, people set them and uh, and with the the knowledge that. They, they are probably not viable um, and only a very small percentage of them are likely to uh, to go on and hatch. The, interestingly enough, um, the uh, I don't know whether your, your, um, you, your results follow the same pattern, but um, snakes are the worst in my experience that um, we very, very rarely have um, success with the eggs of any of the snakes we do seizures on. Um, uh, uh, Turtles are the best. We have had a number of uh, uh, eggs that have popped up in the pond um, and we've uh, had those um, uh, um, incubated and hatch. Um, And lizards, once again, smack in the middle. Some We've had some occasional success, particularly... Um, one that sticks in mind was a clutch of um, eastern water dragons, uh, but the vast majority uh, follow the snake rule and uh, and are not viable. Yes, so there we go. We're we're a broken record, aren't we, um, with our experiences? <laughs> um, pretty similar um, most of the time. Yeah. So, any other thoughts or any other comments that we should? Um, say about um, dystocian reptiles. I know that's only a brief overview for those of you who um, wanted some more detailed um, information like drug doses. We tend not to give them out on the, on the podcast uh, because we don't think it's appropriate. Um, you can contact us separately or even better, um, send us an email. Um, get onto our website at vetgurus.com and um, you can... Um, Post a question and we'll reply to you privately if we don't do a shout out to you on the um, on the podcast. And uh, the um, we're going to say something, Mark. I think the um, that's all good. Next time, next time. Outro man. Outro man. Um, We'll see you next time and thanks for listening. Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.